You all hear me as well? Okay, great. So, hello and welcome to uh, our second session. Uh, this is Latino New South, and if you're here to examine a new lens on institutional and community engagement, you are in the right place. And so today, we are going to use this one particular project to demonstrate um, how, what, what mechanisms emerged for us at three different institutions around institutional and community engagement. Um, so my name is Janine Bryant. I'm from Levine Museum of the New South. I'm Vice President of Education and Programs there. And I'm joined by my colleagues here in the front row. Uh, and it, because they're recording this session, it may be uh, more efficient for us to uh, introduce ourselves as they come to the mic at, at that time. So as we're going through this, I just want to frame for you what you'll be experiencing today. We will describe for you the project, the Latino New South project. Um, it is a learning network comprised of three institutions, the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute here in Alabama, Atlanta History Center, of course, in Atlanta, and Levine Museum of the New South in Charlotte, North Carolina. So um, through this project and through the work of this project, we have been able to explore not only uh, mechanisms to engage the community in a new way, but also to help our institutions form new ways of working together and new ways of collaborating. And we want to share, with that, share those things with you today. We're going to do that by sharing um, not only the process, but then the emergent learnings, and also wrap up with the engagement strategies that you might, the questions and strategies that you might have in the Q&A that you want to delve more deeply into. Okay? So speak now or forever hold your peace. We're going to go, we're going to jump right into this. We tend to be um, particularly informal. So if you have a question for us as we're going through, please don't hesitate to raise your hand, but we will have a Q&A at the end. Um, and for the sake of time, um, you know, if you want to hold it to the end, that might be the most efficient for us all. Right? Okay. So why the Latino New South Project? And we want to give you a little bit of introduction to what it is. There's two things um, that really sparked our interest in this project and we all represent three states North Carolina Georgia and Alabama that have had significant changes in Latino residents Latino Hispanic populations in those areas have grown tremendously um, but also simultaneously not shortly after we were paying attention to that there was a release from the Center for the Future of Museums and it stated that only one in ten of current museum visitors are people of color um, and we thought to ourselves, there's a disconnect in that. We have high populations of minorities in all three of these states, and yet only one in ten museum goers, our traditional museum constituent, are people of color. That's not going to match. Um, and that's going to, to problematize what we do in our fields, what we do at our institutions. And we thought to ourselves, how can we be ahead of the curve? and start to question what this looks like and feels like for our institutions, particularly around community engagement. So just to demonstrate this, this is based off some realities of our census data. So if you look here, you will see the first column is Atlanta, um, the next is Birmingham, and the next one is Charlotte. This is from 1990 to 2010. So within a 20-year time span, proportionately in each of our three communities, you can see this gigantic spike um, by 2010. So although the numbers are different, the actual numbers of people are different, proportionately in each of our cities, um, there is a significant change um, in the Latino Hispanic population. So we wanted to pay attention to that. We wanted to pay attention to how it was shaping our communities. We wanted to pay attention to 
um, how this could be transformational for this time in history for us. Um, and as institutions, we had some real goals around this. So the, in the Innovation Lab, um, you see there it's from MC Arts, MetLife was the major sponsor, um, and AAM, and Partners in Performance were the um, evaluative team. Uh, they actually put out an RFP asking for half-baked ideas. And we said, boy, we got one for you. <laughs> so um, Levine Museum took the lead in drafting um, a proposal that would actually examine the, Latin the Latinization of um, our communities, particularly for a Southeast regional perspective. But we quickly realized, um, even by the first conference call, that um, the collaboration by three institutions to capture a regional perspective was going to be incredibly important and was not something that we could reach to a ready model to replicate. So there was two things going on. Not only are we examining the Latinization of our region, but we were also examining how to collaborate as institutions, um, particularly his history institutions in the South. So we were awarded the 2012 Innovation Lab grant, which afforded us the opportunity to go to Early Virginia and to work in an intense, for an intensive week on the full development of our process and plan to actually um, go at this topic and this trend that we notice in our communities. From that work emerged the Latino New South Network. And um, Atlanta History Center and Birmingham Civil Rights Institute graciously agreed to join us. Um, they came to that intensive week with us, and from that was sparked what continues on, even to today, uh, an intensive learning network in which we not only share what we have learned, but we continue to motivate each other to continue new ways of institutional and community engagement. The goal of the project that emerged from that time that we spent in the intensive work was to explore ways to study the emerging history of the Latino New South and grapple with the opportunities and challenges this new reality offers to museums and their communities. But I want to pause there um, and, and help you to understand that if you can pretty much insert any history of any community right there, um, and we want people to understand that this, this program, this process, this development of this project gave us an opportunity to look at new strategies for engagement, particularly across the region. Um, so we started with listening sessions, and I'm going to let Melina take over at this point um, for the next couple of slides as we talk about our listening of scholars. Hello, everyone. My name is Melina, and I also work for Levine Museum of the New South, and I'm the Latino New South Project Coordinator. So... Um, like Janine mentioned, we had uh, we initially had listening sessions. We had listening sessions in all three cities, and we decided to ask a, a few questions of the Latino community. I apologize, my my voice. I have a cough drop in my mouth because I woke up with a cold this morning. So bear with me. Um, so we asked three questions in each of our um, in each of our, the three cities, and it's like using a partic particular instance. Um, that you have encountered, would you consider your city, Atlanta, Birmingham, or Charlotte, a welcoming city to newcomers? Then second, what do you think is the perception, the perception of Latino is in the broader community? And what role can our museum, our institution, or our center play in telling the stories of Latinos in the Southeast? And we did different types of listening sessions, like you see in the, in the for, uh, first uh, photo there. It's a roundtable listening sessions. We went to radio stations and asked those questions on the air 
uh, uh, for the listeners. We went to tiendas and markets. We went to a Latino credit union. We went to a, a, a clinic. So we went to many different places to ask and get the answers to these questions from the broader community. And, and just to um, know that because of the Latino population is not monolithic, it's not one, you know, we can just go to one place. They have so many uh, diversity within Latinos. We needed to go to all these places to, to get a, um, a bigger picture of what's going on. We also held a scholar session where we invited scholars from around the country that were studying this type of subject and were doing research on this uh, demographic growth that is happening in the Southeast region. As you can see, there are some uh, scholars from Maryland, from California, from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, from Charlotte, North Carolina. We also invited uh, Cecilia Garibay, an evaluation specialist that, that specializes on um, cultural competency, and then Darcy Foreman, an experienced developer. We all came together. It was more of an informal situation where we told them what we had learned through our listening sessions, and they told us what they have learned throughout their research, and we tried to put all that information together. So we learned seven, seven things from those listening sessions and from the scholar session. We learned that Latinos are here to stay, that um, you know, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> the, um, I think the population um, in, in Charlotte was about 47 to 48% U.S. citizens. There are, there are U.S. citizens, Latinos, about 40. So about half of the population in, in Charlotte was already U.S. citizen. Um, and that doesn't mean that the rest of the population, it's an undocumented population. It's more of a, a combination of green card holders or permanent resident, uh, residents and, and undocumented. So second is that we are from many different cultures. That in Charlotte, a lot of Latino population identified themselves as the country of origin. So I'm from Colombia, or I'm Mexican-American, I'm from Argentina. In Atlanta, we heard the word Latino, I'm Latino, more. And then in, in here in, in Birmingham, we heard they identify themselves as Hispanic. So they are from many different cultures, and they identify themselves in many different ways, and we need to... We need to be aware of that. Number three, that biculturalism is growing, specifically in the young population, either the um, uh, the young people that was born that were born in the United States or that were brought to the United States when they were really young. They are growing up with two uh, two cultures simultaneously. They speak English and Spanish at the same time, and it's the most normal thing to them that could ever happen. You know, they hear these. Uh, they speak the language, they listen to the music, they do uh, the, the dances, everything, it's, it's, um, it's bicultural. I always ask people that just to imagine uh, if you have both of your parents and asking which one of them do you love the most. That is how they feel with their biculturalism. So four, extended, extended families are important, are very important. How we define families, it's not, it's not parent and, and two children or three children. It's grandma who lives with us. It's the uncle that came and visited and stayed with us. It's the, um, the cousin, and it's the random friend that lives in our household as well. 
So all of, all of that is our family and it's our extended family and it's very important to us. So, and that is very important to us as museum professionals because in a lot of our institutions we have family memberships. And how do we define that? Are we being welcoming in that aspect? Number five is that bridging is essential. We need to create uh, bridges between uh, communities, not only um, very importantly between the African-American community and the Latino community, uh, but not, not just you know, stay with that. We need to do uh, bridge building in many different ways. We need to do bridge building between Latinos and Latinos because a lot of the culture from uh, South American countries is very different, uh, different than the Mexican country. We need to do a bridge building between Latinos and I already said that between African-American or Southern culture, we need to do the broader community to Latino. So it has many different connections on how we need to do uh, introductions and, and bridge building. Number six is that language is a powerful symbol in three different ways. One, uh, and one of it is functional. If you do not speak English and you come to our museum, you need some sort of Spanish language signage to be able to function through our building and know what the what the exhibit is about. So it's functional to a lot of the older Latino population uh, and recent immigrants. That too, for the younger folks, younger people, they um, they don't need Spanish because they can function in, in English, but if they see something that is English and Spanish, they know that their parents, their grandma that doesn't speak English is welcome at that place. They know that it is a welcoming place because it's utilizing both of their language that they feel comfortable to, uh, with. And then third, for the people who, uh, who the English speakers who speak no Spanish, when they come into a museum and see that there is a lot of translation in Spanish, immediately that is a sign that the, the Latino population is growing in our region and that we need to, um, and, and, and it's more of a, um, they're, they're realizing that, this is, that the population is growing there. And number seven, becoming documented is difficult. You know, uh, uh, there, is, there is undocumented population between the, between the Latino population. And most often we hear a, a lot of comments. We've heard from them saying that they always tell them, well, why don't you get in the line and, you know, fix your immigration status so you can be documented or legal. That you must not care if you don't, if you're not trying to to do this. But sometimes there is not a line to get behind in. There's not a line to. Uh, there's not a way that they can become documented. They've explored many different ways, but there's just not a possibility with the cur uh, current immigration system. So they, uh, the the Latino community, wanted us to uh, to learn this and to uh, give this message to the broader community. So those are the seven things that we learned. So what have we done with those, with that insight? And we're going to pass it on. Um, each of our institutions is going to come in and tell you exactly what they have done. But we wanted to give you a bit of a framework for how the remainder of this conversation will work, particularly with a lens on institutional and community engagement. So first, we wanted to help frame what we are using as institutional fabric um, for this conversation. We're talking about, is this project mission related? It was for all three of our institutions. 
However, um, each of our missions are very different. We recognize that. We come from three very different um, focus points for our institution. Um, and Kate is going to point out some more things. That, but obviously the Atlanta History Center is I, I can't even multiply how many times larger. Um, we come from a, a staff of 16 uh, full-time staff at Levine. And BCRI has about the same. But Atlanta has about uh, just a couple more, a couple hundred more. <laughs> so um, when our, our institutional context was really different. So we had to make sure that we um, were acknowledging that. Um, our board and how our boards function are different. Um, again, Levine is actually a small institution. Our board is about double the size of our staff. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, if you can imagine. Um, and so that, that influences how we function quite a bit. Um, our staff and their engagement with our process was incredibly important. Our docents and volunteers and their understanding of the project was incredibly important. Um, our members and how they um, interpret what the work that we continue to do it needed to be there. Um, and then in some cases, the advisory council, our advisory capacity of our constituents was also something that was um, going to be foundational for the work that we continue to, to do. On the other hand, looking at the broader community, and what does that community engagement pipeline uh, look like? And so <laughs> I took a stab at uh, kind of charting it out, but we have some other uh, graphics in here. But in essence, it was looking at your established and your emergent partners. So even at Airly, when we were there in Virginia together, we created a list of people we've already worked with. So each of our institutions had already done some work in the Latino community. What did that look like? Who were those people, individuals and organizations? Who were they? We created a master list, each of us. Um, some of our lists were longer than others, and that's okay, um, because we all had to start somewhere. Um, and then our next thing that emerged was those listening sessions that Melina identified. So that was an opportunity to meet and share the project, the process, the pipeline. Um, and what we found is that that reconnected, or connected initially, people to our mission. And then the whole cycle starts over again. So then is it in your mission? Is it in your board? And it's in your staff? And so it creates this wonderful pipeline that we have seen at each of our institutions um, has been very healthy. So here's just one way, if you, if you want to think of it, I have it um, charted out with lines and arrows, but in some ways it's much more of a matrix. Um, and so if you think of, of your institution as a matrix and all of the layers and how they influence and impact each other, I think you will have a better understanding. This is my um, stab at a matrix. So. Or like a hive of activity, if you will. Um, but you can see there, no matter how you graphically represent it, the notion of that, there's, there's some reciprocity amongst this at this stage. Um, as your board becomes more invested, they introduce new people to the, the concept, and then you gain new board members. As your staff becomes involved in the process, they want to go out and look for new opportunities to connect. Um, as your members continue to share, they bring in new members. Uh, your docent and volunteers change your story, and then ultimately you get new emergent relationships from all that work. That too happens with the community engagement pipeline new partners and um, rekindling relationships with old partners, new programming, and rekindling programming that you thought you might not want to continue previously. Uh, exhibition, this has been a big one for us. New connections, and um, our Sites of Conscience partners that I see in the audience will appreciate this one, new dialogue. Uh, and so, 
here's another representation. We had our established partners, those could be individuals, organizations, people we've worked with in the past, things we've been doing for years. Think of your Dia de los Muertos programs, those of you out there. Um, and then we have our emergent pro projects. Those are individuals and organizations who, once they hear about the project, can't wait to sign on. And they're looking for how to connect. Those listening sessions were a valuable platform for us to move these partnerships and these connections forward. And then we have a new level of engagement that we have heretofore never seen in any of our institutions around Latinos. So first, Atlanta. Hi, I am Kate Whitman, and I am the Vice President of Public Programs for the Atlanta History Center. I'm one of 59 full-time staff <laughs> positions, um, and we also have a part-time staff of about 60. Um, the Atlanta History Center is on 33 acres in Buckhead, so we are not just a museum. We have two historic homes. We have seven um, historic gardens on our site. We have a huge archives building, Keenan Research Center, so that staff does not all work for me, with me. <laughs> just want to be clear that I'm a public program staff of not that many. Um, so what had the Atlanta History Center done before this? And before I actually even talk about that, to be asked to be part of this project has been one of the biggest, I've been at the History Center for 10 years and has been um, one of the highlights of my career. To have to the opportunity to work with the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute and the Levine Museum of the New South is such a, a growth opportunity for us and, and um, we almost feel, you know, they selected us to be part of this project, so we're very excited. Um, things that we had been doing in, in the 10 years that I've been there, we've always done a Day of the Dead program. We've always done a Three Kings Day program, and we, like many institutions, have great attendance on those days. Our Day of the Dead program brings 3,000 to 4,000 people to our site. Um, but are those people coming any other time during the year? And I think that's our biggest challenge is that, the, that they weren't. Um, the community engagement that we had, we have a Latin American association in Atlanta that is a wonderful service provider, but they didn't have time to work with us. They are so busy providing services that they, you know, were a nice to have, not a must have. And so this project has really helped us build that relationship. But we have worked with the Mexican consulate in the Institute of Mexico in our um, city to do these two programs for a long time. Um, in 2009, we did an exhibit called Through the Lens of Mundo Hispanico, which is um, the, it's a 30-year-old um, Hispanic newspaper in Atlanta. And it was a wonderful exhibit, really looking at all the different cultures represented in Atlanta. And not a lot of people came to see that exhibit. Um, in 2014, we will be hosting American Sabor, which is from um, the Smithsonian Institute of Traveling Exhibit. So that's some things that we have going on. What's next for the History Center? So um, what we did differently in Atlanta is that we invited established community people to a dinner. So we did a lot of listening sessions in all of our cities. But in Atlanta, we invited people who are the movers and shakers in the Latin community to a dinner. We didn't do a listening session with them. We bought them booze and food, and we talked about we talked about what's next for Atlanta and what can we do to serve this community better. And through that, we built um, great relationships. We collaborate with the Latin American Association on some outreach projects now. Um, we're building new relationships with Latinos and in encouraging their input in our new History of Atlanta exhibit that we're working on. Um, 
This is part of an overall audience development strategy for us to be working with every community more. There's a huge Asian population in Atlanta. Um, the gay and lesbian community in Atlanta is thriving and we should be doing more for them. Um, our African American um, ties have been strong and continue to be strong, but we would like to see them more at the things that we're doing as well. Um, and we are seeking funding for outreach opportunities that are specifically geared to this community. I know, quick. Good afternoon. I'm Priscilla Hancock-Cooper. I'm Vice President of Institutional Programs at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. My boss is in the room, so you all, you know, really seem interested. Uh, that's <laughs> Dr. Lawrence Pigeau is our President and CEO. I, I have to echo, Kate, this has been a fabulous experience for me professionally, personally, and for our institution. We've learned and gained uh, so much. This talks about um, what happened last year. Our context is a, a somewhat different. Our uh, mission is to promote civil and human rights worldwide through education. We had done uh, exhibitions focused on the Hispanic community. We had done some workshops, some work where we learned that that community is not monolithic and perhaps step back a little bit to, to try to figure out how to work more effectively. Uh, but what happened in Birmingham and in Alabama was passage of HB 56, House Bill 56. As you may have heard, some of the most regressive, repressive, anti-immigrant, uh, even though it had a name like Job Protection Act, uh, uh, legislation in the country. So if you can just imagine that happening as we are becoming engaged in this initiative to more effectively engage with the uh, Hispanic community. So what we discovered uh, during HB 56 was that the community, the Hispanic community, viewed the Institute as not only a safe place, but a legitimizing place. So if they could do a program or a reception or a meeting at the Institute, then they felt it added legitimacy to what they were doing. Uh, and also, we saw the traditional, in quotes, civil rights community embrace uh, this movement around immigrant rights. So we had that as kind of the fuel uh, driving, but we, we wanted to be more than a place for people to meet. And that's why this whole idea of community engagement was so important. And I just wanted to mention that for all of us, before we did the listening sessions, we did a lot of groundwork. We had a lot of meetings, one-on-one -on -one, uh, with groups. We went to I went to the Hispanic Business Council, I went to Catholic Services, I went to, we have a Hispanic Interest Coalition. We really, from that established group that Janine mentioned, we got contacts for other groups to meet with and talk with. So it does take uh, some legwork and some groundwork. But uh, last year, um, because of all this work, we really got excited about Hispanic Heritage Month. It was also our 20th anniversary. Uh, Hispanic Heritage Month runs from September 15th to October 15th. 
Uh, during that time, we sponsored a voter registration effort with uh, one of our Spanish language radio stations. They came on site. We hosted meetings about immigration, as I mentioned. Uh, for 2013, we hosted a major human rights conference, and one of our speakers was Jose Antonio Vargas, and then we followed up with a, a panel on immigration. What's next? Uh, Hispanic Heritage Month 2013, we're approaching differently. One of our great outcomes is that we have an ongoing Latino New South Advisory Committee. I told them they could change the name. They didn't want to. Uh, so we've retained these relationships. Um, our big, there's a, a fiesta that's a major community festival. We'll be participating in that. Uh, I was sharing with my colleagues one of the lear learnings that came out of those meetings was we were trying to, you know, come up with an exhibition of parallels between the two movements. But what our advisors told us was, no, our community needs to know the story of the civil rights movement in Birmingham for inspiration, for information, for encouragement. So we're very excited about that. Uh, we're also going to host a his Hispanic Heritage Day, where we will offer Spanish language tours. Uh, one of our great outreach opportunities has been through our youth leadership program, uh, where we've been actually able to really engage in an intensive way with high school students who are Hispanic. Um, and we will be hosting an exhibition for all the children. Say it in Spanish, Melina. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, will be coming up, as you may or may not know, next year is the 60th anniversary of Brown v. Board, the Supreme Court decision uh, integrating education. And this exhibition looks at uh, a, a Latino family, the Mendez family, and their struggle in court case, a little-known story around school desegregation. So we continue to work with our community partners and look for meaningful opportunities to collaborate. Um, at Levine Museum of the New South, we um, had a long and existing uh, relationship doing Dia de los Muertos, so um, that was happening, that was established, and have, we've been doing that for many years. And we also worked very closely with our Latin American coalition. But we'd also um, been invited to work with the well, International Coalition Sites of Conscience um, in their work around immigration um, in 2008. And through that, we're also working um, with things like the film Welcome to Shelbyville. If you have not seen that film, I would encourage you to use it. And um, that film looks at um, immigration situation in Tennessee, in Shelbyville, Tennessee. Um, and was a great opportunity for us to really kickstart a conversation in our community that has continued on in, in lots of different ways. We also um, hosted a book club. So there you see the warmth of other suns. Featured, and we actually use Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which is actually a very large book if you have not seen it. Uh, and she talks about the Great Migration. But what we noticed is there were so many parallels to the migration story of Latinos, um, the push and pull factors, the identity development when you move, um, the history that would that you bring along with you when you go to a new place. Um, and so we hosted a group of African American and Latino young people. And over the course of Black History Month. We delved deeply into this book, and they brought their stories and um, were 
asked to go back and interview people. Um, but we also had African-American teens in that same group, and they brought their stories. And then they came together and shared. Um, it was really very powerful. And we continue to have relationships with some of those students today. We've also had other type of programming. For instance, we hosted a naturalization ceremony at the museum, um, naturalization workshop and ceremony. We uh, partner with um, USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, where they came and literally, the participants literally became US citizens at our museum. And we um, used our permanent exhibit that that shows the transformation of Charlotte since 1865 until now, for them to uh, have a guided tour to learn about their community that they are now U.S. citizens of and have new responsibilities towards. So we, we had that. We also hosted a community-generated exhibit. And, and I don't know if you can uh, see in that photograph, it's, it's a kite. And the kite was designed and drawn and it was designed by kids who were affected by either one or both of their parents being deported. And we hosted those kites um, in, our, um, in our museum with the story of the, uh, of the, of the child, telling what happened when, when, that, when that, that situation happened. And also the tail of the, of the kite was from one of the clothing that the loved one left behind. Uh, we also made uh, implemented some social media campaigns, and we and when we asked the remember I told you that we asked questions to their community. We also did it through social media and through festivals, asking people to write their answers on a big piece of paper, uh, taking a photograph. We also hosted a um, a Latino speaker to talk about leadership and about Latino style leaders uh, Latino leadership styles. And um, currently, for Hispanic Heritage Month this year, as, as you notice, we're currently in Hispanic Heritage Month right now. And we've hosted a, um, a new initiative, a passport-style initiative, where we came together with a list of Hispanic Heritage Month events during, in, our, in our city and with a lot of civil rights movement anniversaries and comm commemorations. Um, we, ho we put them on a list and, and put it into a passport style, and we encourage the, the community to attend as many as they can into this passport, and whoever gets the most has, gets a prize. And we're, in, uh, we're doing it again during Black History Month to try to do the bridge building between Latinos and African-American community. Okay, so what's next for uh, Levine Museum of the New South? We are currently uh, developing an exhibit that documents the, the benefits and challenges, benefits and challenges of the hypergrowth of the Latino population in the South. And as we mentioned, working with the Atlanta History Center and Birmingham Civil Rights Institute to get some input from, uh, to make this exhibit not just, hopefully not just Charlotte-centric, but Southeast region. Uh, we're continuing to offer ongoing and, and cross-culture and relevant programming, and we do this in, uh, with a method of, we call it real-time evaluation. Every program uh, we do, we evaluate it, we, we go back to the community, is that what you meant? Is that what you wanted? Was that good for you? What else can we do? And we, uh, again, develop new type of programming that is uh, relevant to our community. And obviously, continue to build sustainable relationships with the Latino community and leaders. 
And I really want to stress this, that think outside of the museum box. I, I don't come from a, a museum background. I'm not a museum professional. Well, I guess now I am. <laughs> <laughs> I guess now I am. But, um, but think outside the box, not to other museums or to the, the typical uh, partnerships or relationships that you build. We've built a relationship with the clinic. We've built a relationship with the Latino Credit Union, with a um, – with a grocery store, with a um, obviously newspapers, but it's just like go outside the box. And we've found that all these uh, these great programming have come directly from them, and they're the ones that give us the ideas and say, you know, we would like to to see this, we would like to know this, and that is where and that is where how we create this stuff. So think outside the box. All right. So this last piece. Um, is really coming back at you all now as we transition into the Q&A portion. I think I'm on time. I'm early? All right. Um, so <laughs> we were kind of speed talking, so I hope you guys can keep up with me. Um, but thinking about engagement, as, as museums continue to seek that relevance that we are all um, so desperate to, maybe you guys don't recognize, but we need to be desperately seeking uh, <laughs> our relevance. Um, and we want to reflect our communities. As we continue to do that, we cannot afford not to listen. We have to listen. We have to be reflective and relevant to our communities to stay engaged and invest in the community, and so that community continues to stay engaged and invested in us. Um, these are voices. The Latino community is a voice that we recognize as a museum community in Charlotte and Birmingham and Atlanta that has largely been silent. You may have communities in your own, uh, you may have uh, voices in your own communities that have also been silent. Sometimes they are silenced, and sometimes they are just silent. Um, this engagement process may be a way to get to both of those communities, to both of those uh, sets. Um, so pay attention. Are there demographics changing in your community? Um, and we say demographics, I don't mean only race and ethnicity. Um, many people are acknowledging the baby boomers that are um, aging out of work or choosing no longer to work. <laughs> uh, as that's happening, are you asking questions that are getting at that demographic? Um, because you might find people who don't consider themselves museum people who are now looking for a way um, to really kind of sink their feet into their community in a way that they haven't been able to because they've been in the workforce. Um, so demographics can mean lots of things. So please don't just limit yourself to thinking of race and ethnicity as the only dimension of that. Um, are you adaptable or relevant in a shifting cultural climate? Um, and again, um, we tend to use these words are loaded, but I would challenge you to think about your relevance and to really question what that looks like and means for your institution um, and to ask that question outside of your doors. Go to the places. Um, as we were talking about going to the radio station and asking the question, um, to the audience, <laughs> I think I heard somebody go, um, <laughs> imagine all the calls you would get. Yeah, imagine. <laughs> imagine all the calls you would get to help inform you. And those people are largely, um, they're not going to be 100% the people that come through your doors. Um, but hearing your voice and hearing your institution represented on a local pop music radio station um, may be just the kind of intersection that they needed to open and access your doors once and for all. Um, and what can you do to engage and build bridges uh, from your existing audience to emerging audiences? And I think um, Priscilla alluded to this, Kate has alluded to this, you hear us, because this is so important. We are not neglecting our um, traditional constituents. 
That's not what this process is about. Um, it's about learning to raise the voice of the people that we have not traditionally engaged um, and to help some bridge building and hand holding and hugging uh, amongst those communities. Um, and you would be really surprised that many of our listening sessions ended with just those kinds of activities happening. So at this point, we want to um, open up for question and answer. That's Melina's contact information if you uh, want to write it down. She's our lead disseminator of uh, slides, worksheets, and so on. But we're happy to um, answer any questions you might have at this time. So there's, so you, um, let me restate her question so that everyone can hear what she said. She was saying, you talked about listening sessions and you talked about the collaborative process that developed um, where you develop programs or exhibitions as a result of these listening sessions. Um, what did that, basically what did that look like and you know, how did it operate functionally? So um, we can go back to the Papalote project. That's a great example. Okay, so the kites that you saw pictured there. Um, so the woman, the artist who created those kites was looking for a place to, well she actually, I don't even think she had them done yet. And she participated in one of our listening sessions. Um, just as an artist in the community, she came, she, we were told, um, she'd already been working with us before, she'd been working with the Latin American Coalition. So what would happen is we call somebody at Latin American Co Coalition and we say, Jess, hey, you know some people we can invite to this? <laughs> and she said, oh yeah, I have, I have a list of people. And she's like, well do you want all the usual suspects? No, we don't want just the usual suspects. We want them, we want some other people too. Um, and so we'd invite them through email, through phone call, through luncheon. We'd invite them to come to a major listening session. Um, and so ours was hosted in August so that Birmingham and Atlanta could come as well. And um, the first one that we did, Rosalia, the artist, was in the audience. So as we're talking about the project, as we're talking about being open to um, exploring different ways that, that the museum may be responsive and relevant to our community, she says, would you be willing to host an exhibit? And we say... We had without sanctuary at that time. Okay. So we had an exhibit of lynching photography in our building. So when people come to the listening session, if they came to our institution for their session, they could go explore the museum, you know, mingle, mix. So some people were seeing our core exhibit for the first time. But in her case, she saw lynching photography. And she thought it was really important. She saw an important connection there um, about community mentality, about um, family. Who is without sanctuary? Um, and telling that story. She saw that connection. And then she approached us and said, well, could you host us while you have this up? And it was actually going to be during the time that we had our community festival, Day of the, um, Day of the Dead. Um, and we hosted it all the way through MLK Day. And on our MLK Day festival, we actually hosted a kite-making workshop to help people understand that up as a part of the dream, could you tell your story? Could you tell your family's migration story? Um, and what did it look like? And she was actually the artist that did it. So I don't know how many intersections that, that is demonstrated in that, but that's simply because we invited her to the listening session. She knew that we were open to new ideas, because we said it, and then she kept plugging us in. Now her work is not only being featured in um, other institutions in Charlotte, 
but the National Council of La Raza is also featuring her work and is um, partnering with her. She has a children's book coming out, and um, she did interviews like every other week. <laughs> she felt like she worked there a while. Um, but she, she yesterday she inaugurated a mural. She, she has a mural in the community up where anybody can see it, going down Central Avenue, which is our lead corridor for Latino population. Mexico. 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 She's Mexican. Mexican. Rosalia. Torres Weiner. Torres Weiner. Yeah, T O R R E S. Yeah, that's a good important one. Right, and I would say all of our institutions. Um, all of our institutions are trying to do that, and but I would also caution: a lot of that has to do with the size of your institution and the the mechanism that you have to make programmatic decisions in place, um, because that's going to impact the speed with which you can be reactive to that. And let me just make a comment as well as if we are if we are saying that we want to be welcoming to this population and we want to learn about the, their their. Um, their cultural uniqueness or something. This is part, you need to learn the entire thing about their culture. You know, this is part, I think this is one of the things that we learn, is that they do come to us with, like, really cool and innovative program ideas that they're, it's generated through the community, but they usually come to us, like, a month before, or a month and a half before, right? So how is our institution responding to that? Do we have, we have a vetting process. Obviously, we can't just say yes to everything. And um, it has to go through senior staff. It need to does it align with our mission? Uh, do we have resources to do it? But we we would have that process, and usually that we have like six months or a year in advance plan of what we're gonna we do. Plan it. That we plan it, right? So if we want to be open to their ideas, do we need to adjust that? Do we need to be open to that? Because as soon as we had the listening sessions and we were asking them, please come with with your ideas and. And not just saying it, like you said, but also having, like, the attitude and the welcoming atmosphere to do that. We did have a lot of people coming to us within a month or a month and a half saying, I want to do this commemoration on this date. So readjusting. I don't think it does any good to, like, not tell you the honest truth about things when we're talking. Um, so as a result, as the biggest institution and the institution with um, – you know, exhibition calendars that are planned out five years in advance and, you know, being the only, there were two staff members represented in this project and we're only two members of senior staff in a group of 10 people. Um, and I think that we did a workshop on listening sessions yesterday for four hours, so we didn't talk about the listening sessions very much, but, you know, a lot of the things that came up in those listening sessions are things like, I think you should do an exhibit on every single, you know, country, country that we represent. And, you know, you can hear that and we write it down, but that, that's not feasible for the Atlanta History Center, nor do I think it's feasible. So for us, it was much smaller things. It was, um, there is a, five minutes away from us, there is a Presbyterian church that has a um, outreach program called the Amistad, where Hispanic middle schoolers and high schoolers come there every day after school to get prepared for college. 
and we are now doing outreach programs with them. Um, we are building better relate. We have a new board member who is Barbarella Diaz, who represents Diaz Foods. So we we have made other small shifts. You know, um, we don't have the capacity, I think, to make those kind of you know commitments to do exhibits. We're we're not a community art center, and I think that was an important thing that we we had to hear everything that they said but be realistic that a lot of those ideas aren't they're not going to come to fruition I thought through different yeah. institutions but that we were transparent with yeah. them of how what we can do because one of the things in the even though we're listening it gives the community a chance to learn about your exhibition to I mean your institution and helps them to get more realistic expectations um, one of the things we did, you saw the mention of language. No, we did not go through and redo all our labels. But we did print a programs and services rec card in Spanish and gained a contact to a uh, language professor at one of the local colleges who's willing to have our students interpret anything that we need. And that's interesting, too, because, you know, different people will say, I read that, and that wasn't quite the right word, but it was great. <laughs> Uh, and we did, uh, with our listening sessions in all the cities, some of them were in Spanish and English or just in Spanish. Uh, around the exhibition piece, um, you know, what we were hearing was we need to, see, we want to see ourselves when we come. We want to see ourselves, which sounds real familiar to an African American. Um, one commitment that we've made, and Laura Anderson is my colleague who introduces herself as an archivist, and she's an archivist par excellence, but Laura's also very involved in programming at the Institute. So we've made a commitment working with the Alabama Coalition for Immigrant Justice to be the home for oral histories that they're collecting and to help them develop. Uh, and in thinking about that, we looked at an area in our human rights gallery we might be able to do um, help me, uh, an exhibition that is an online exhibition. So it may not be on the walls, but we can share photos, uh, images, and stories that way. So it is, um, and I don't think we've gotten a lot of... Um, Unrealistic requests, as I said, when we started talking about creating what what would you what do you you want us to do when we come to do outreach, you know what we said was we need you to help us, you know we need you to help us get, gain entree, but then the question was, what should we bring, and they said something very different <laughs> from what we would have assumed, so you know you do what you can. Going first. I mean, I'll give you the basics. Each city was different, and I'll give you the basics. The basics are um, that we needed to gather a group of anywhere from eight. Eight was a, a good number to start with. Eight to twelve people in the in the talking to, to each other. Um, we would sometimes host a luncheon that would have about seventy-five people, but we break out into tables. Does that make sense? Okay. So we break. We might invite a, a, a large amount of people, but we break out into smaller group sessions. Um, and that would usually be about 8 to 25 people that are in those sessions. We would have a facilitator, a timekeeper. We have a whole, um, oh, yeah, there's a whole other PowerPoint on this. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to run through it really quickly. But you have, an, you have a scribe, a timekeeper, and a facilitator at the table. The facilitator was um, 
trained ahead of time to ask three specific questions, and those questions were listed up here earlier. Um, it took us a while to create those questions. It took us about a, a month and a half and several conference calls uh, that were hour long each. So the, <laughs> I know it just like, looks like three questions, but um, you want to be very specific about what you want to gain and garner from those questions. Particularly for us, it was important to, to note the temperature in each of our three cities for the relationship to our institution. Um, because when we're doing like only Latino group, we had some sessions that were specifically for Latino Hispanic groups and some, some sessions that were mixed groups, some sessions that were um, uh, long-time community residents, and some sessions that were people who were in deportation process um, who were fairly new. Um, we had teacher sessions. They were at different places. We, didn't, we deliberately made a decision not to host every session within our doors. Some people can't get to you. Some people are not going to come to you. Um, some people already have their mind made up about who you are and what you do, and they're never going to make it through the door, so you need to go out and meet them. Um, we were asked yesterday about also um, outliers, people who um, felt strongly this was not a project we should be doing. We hear their voice too um, and try to take in consideration their voice and invite them to the table as well. Um, so this is receiving community, Latino community, non-Latino community, long-time residents, new residents. I'm trying to go through all our layers. It was many layers. Sure. It was many layers. Does that make sense? Well, we um, had the good fortune of being involved in another project, another grant project where Reach Advisors was working with us. Um, so for all of our Latino program, they developed two different surveys, um, one in Spanish, one in English. And for us, the all of the surveys, the only negative comments weren't about the History Center. It was It was all positive to be hosting this. It was actually directed to the consulate and to the Mexican Institute. So they would say things like you, because the, the consulate and the institute are the ones who develop the programs and they get the, the people who perform or who do the altars. So it was things like, you didn't take my altar or, um, you know, almost that it was a commercialization of their heritage. So um, it was incredibly helpful for us and I shared those, I shared the feedback for both of those, it, um, if you haven't worked with REACH advisors, they're great. They give you great information. And so I shared both of those slide decks um, with my colleagues. And now having another, um, having Cecilia involved to do some of that evaluation for us, I think is going to be really helpful. Uh, I just w did want to say that everything does not work perfectly. You know, I sure don't want to give you that impression. And, uh, you know, in attempting to collaborate, sometimes you get what you want and sometimes it's not quite what you want. So one of our collaborative workshops, we didn't need anybody to tell us that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't exactly what, what we wanted. But you take that and you, you know, we'll do it differently next time. It's, it's part of the process. So I think what I wrote down was don't be willing to fail. I think yeah. we said that yesterday. Don't be afraid to try something. If it doesn't work, you've learned something, you go back and, and do it differently. But um, 
I think it's talking about giving voice. I think people want to be heard. And if they feel your sincerity in that outreach, they'll be very responsive. Any other questions? So through the lens of Mundo Hispanico was an exhibit that was up for four months. And when I say we, it didn't have great attendance, it um, we count anyone who came to the museum during that time as someone who came to see, in, you know, through the lens of Mundo Hispanico. Um, but we did not see a large group of Latinos coming to see that exhibit. So it was more not a success to get those people through our door. So it was an exhibit. Um, completely bilingual exhibit, had a bilingual family guide. It was curated by Lino Dominguez, who was the editor of Mundo Hispanico and became our partner, our community partner on this project. But it was not, it had great media reach. I mean, it was on so many different people's radars and in papers, but people were not coming through our doors. I mean, Day of the Dead and Three Kings are both free programs. I think that's a huge, you know, when, when they don't have any barriers, when anyone doesn't have a barrier to come to your museum, they're more likely to come to your museum. So it was more that, um, and that's that's a big part of as we develop this exhibit, Levine is the key, um, they're the key people on the project of the exhibit development. And we keep saying things like, we have to be able to sell this exhibit to our, our community and to our board. And, and so um, I don't want another through the lens of Mundo Hispanico where it's just our general visitors who are seeing that exhibit. Janine, yeah, Janine and Priscilla are sick of hearing me say this, but I'm like, nobody, nobody in Atlanta says, do you think the Georgia Aquarium is for us? Do you think that we're going to enjoy it? Like, they just go. And I think that that's our challenge as museums, to find something that you don't think about whether it's appropriate for you or whether you're going to enjoy it because it's cool and you just want to do it. So that's that's the challenge that Levine's about to face. Are the Levine who says, is it controversial, and will they come anyway? Um. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I would push back a little bit on the, the uh, I don't know if I'm, let me restate what you said, that usually Latino don't have, like, don't include exhibits or museums part of their leisure activity. I, I would push back on that a little bit because, um, like Kate was saying, they go to the aquarium. They go to the um, what are the world ones? of Poe. World of Poe. <laughs> and experience yeah. of botanical gardens and parks for any community that's not a normal 
Right. No, no, I... And and it's, you know, up to a certain extent, you're right. But it, the thing is, like, um, there is part of our listening sessions, like, they do want to have... And, and what we learn is that their leisure activity has to, like... Um, have different different aspects to it. It has to be family friendly. It has to be that their time is uh, uh, worthwhile. They use the word aprovechar. They have really small time to do leisure activities. So all these these, these leisure activities has to be fun, exciting, family oriented, and 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 have <laughs> something to learn. So all these things have to be at the same place for them to decide that that's what I'm going to do with my with my extra time and then I think that exhibit can be in in that in that in that category if we do if we do it right and if we include their voice right and a lot of Right. Right. So we've expanded that. And I think what you're getting at is we've found one way to answer it is when we do programming, we're still not doing the programming by ourselves. Like at this point, we recognize we need a partner. And so for any program that you saw up there, there was a partner with us. Who, and not only does, does that help just flesh out the ideas better, but what it also does is their constituents who are already interested in that cool stuff they were doing, they're going to come to the program because, oh, you're involved with that at Levine. Um, and then they come back because they see other stuff that we're doing with other partners <laughs> as well. Yeah. Wait, wait, um, can, I, can she go first? Because you already asked. Um, I just wanted to kind of get a, a stronger understanding of the audience that you're targeting. Um, are you targeting specifically research interests, populations, no. or were there longstanding Hispanic native residents involved as well? I, I can speak to this real quick. And you see us all shaking our head. Because um, I alluded to this uh, briefly earlier. When I say there were la many layers, we recognized this very early on in the project. Um, in Atlanta, there's a long, long time established uh, Cuban community. Um, in Birmingham, there's a huge emerging Mexican population um, that has come. In Charlotte, it's a weird mix that uh, does not rest in one bucket. You can't fit it in one bucket. It's not just all new, new immigrants. It's not just all um, people who came in on visas through work or through school. So we had to acknowledge that. And we also had to recognize the different contexts for each of our communities. So I would say that we had to be very flexible in um, our audience development. And that continues to be a, a question that we are working on, which, hence why we. Yes. yes, of course, yeah, that, yes. that is what we refer to as like the bridge building. It has to be introductions between uh, be Latinos and Latinos. Uh, for the example of Charlotte, Charlotte it has a Bank of America uh, and Wells Fargo headquarters there. So there's a, there's a huge, um, I say, decent amount of Latino professional educated population. Mm -hmm. There is also because somebody needed to, to construct those skyscrapers, so there's a huge, like, uh, construction. Um, there were work crews brought in from Texas, basically, to build right. the Bank of America and w what was then Wachovia um, skyscrapers. So and they didn't leave. 
So there is a working population. There is a, like a only Spanish, very recent immigrant population. So the the integration between them as well and the different programming that we have to adjust to their needs. Mm -hmm. I just want to, we're all part of Sites of Conscious Immigration Project. Latino New South is not an immigration project. I think that's a very important distinction mm -hmm. to make that this was not an immigration project. And that's one of the things we had to discuss. But I'll just mention some of the audiences and locations for our listening sessions. Uh, let's see. Uh, our first one was a welcome lunch that, that included Latinos, non-Latinos, but more business, community leader types. Um, we went to the Hispanic Interest Coalition of Alabama, met with a group uh, of women. It's a women's group. It was all in Spanish, which was really enlightening for us non-Spanish speakers. Um, we went to, oh, we had great popsicles there from a local <laughs> Mexican vendor. Uh, we went to Mi Pueblo supermarket and uh, heard from a family that has a construction business, owns radio stations, and now owns two supermarkets in um, Birmingham. Then we went to a school. So I'm just trying to give you a sense. We went to school. We talked to parents who gave us an earful. We talked to teachers, one of whom gave us an earful. Um, <laughs> and then we talked to teenagers. And it, it was like that even though each city was different, we really went after very diverse audiences. Other questions? Yes. So um, a couple of your institutions have really small staffs, right? Yeah, yeah. And when you're doing a lot, For the, you're talking to the smaller institutions? Yeah. Okay. How and so, do you manage all that workload? Because it takes a long time to work with yes, it the development. Mm -hmm. It takes time. <laughs> um, Levine hosts four major community uh, festivals each year. We already know that going in. So if we're invited to participate in another, then we start to evaluate um, our capacity to do that. Like um, last year we participated in El Grito, but this year we couldn't do it. Um, not in the way that we did last year. We couldn't have a booth in a... All the, so we have to manage that and manage the expectations of our audience, our constituents. Um, and we are very, and you heard Melina talk about transparency, we are very transparent. Um, and then once people kind of come behind the scenes and start collaborating with us, and the first time they step into um, our administrative offices and they're like, only like eight offices in here. <laughs> like, yeah, it's not 80 people hiding behind the doors waiting to bust out some programs. So um, we are very transparent. And as soon as they start working with us realistically, they understand, they, they understand pretty immediately. Um, and that's where a lot of that collaborative energy, and we also keep a posture of humility about this. Um, and so we kind of say, uh, we can't do that, um, but we would love to hold your hand as you do. And we'll put it on our Facebook page, and we'll put it in our newsletter mm -hmm. if you tell us ahead of time. But we can't, we can't do it. Being transparent from the 
from the get-go and say from the listening session, say you are here because of this. We want to make you your great ideas matter to us, but your your picture is not going to be in an exhibit. Unless they have a really cool story, then their picture may be in the exhibit. Right. That's right. Okay. <laughs> inviting people in to do what they want to do at your property, and we always think we have to do it, but to invite people in and give them the space mm -hmm. to create what they want and need and whatnot in, in your amazing facility mm -hmm. has proved for us to be a much more powerful mm -hmm. and um, inclusive way, and not even feeling like we don't even have to know necessarily all the I think you're making a great point. Um, the I think one factor that we, we would have to kind of be wary of is um, our institutions. Um, we have number one. We have to make sure that whatever it is out there, it aligns with our mission. So you keep hearing me talking about mission, mission, mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I didn't mean. I mean, within the framework you already presented. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, knowing that it aligns with our mission, um, and a lot of our work is done collaboratively. So when I say partner, I mean, and that, that's hard. I didn't mean it. That's, re that's really hard. <laughs> Just like this learning network has been hard, it's hard <laughs> to really sincerely collaborate, which means extra meetings that you didn't anticipate. Um, so when we collabor collaborate with community partners, I, we, it's not a, we're going to collaborate, which means we'll put your logo on this, mm -hmm. and then you guys show up and bring all your people that normally, no, we mean like we really plan the events together. And that is so much uh, more, like you're saying, that's so, right, so we're, I'm not talking about hosting. So I'm talking about like real on the ground collaboration, which I think gives a different level of investment. I think hosting can give people a certain amount of empowerment to the space. Um, but when it comes to aligning with your mission and really feeling invested in your institution and what your institution will be doing henceforth and forevermore, not just the, the day of the dids, not just the uh, mm. Los Reyes, like, to really feel invested um, and do that collaborative effort, I think that's a different level of engagement. And that's what we're kind of challenging institutions mm -hmm. to think about. I was about to say something racist, so I don't want to. Okay, don't say that. I won't. Racist. Um, <laughs> You're on a microphone. I know. <laughs> uh, what, I, what I wanted to say is that one of the things that has been very important to us is we don't just want Hispanic audiences for Hispanic events. We want that community to become part of what we do. And as I've mentioned before, we have a different entry point because of all the new activism 
around the immigration laws and the parallels people see between the civil rights movement, what we do, how it connects to contemporary issues. That's been a great door opener for us. But I'm most excited about our legacy program because those are young people who came into the program, were part of it with the other youngsters and have, just like everybody else, they, they stick around, they've stayed. So, yeah, you know, I, it's, it's not an either or, but I just wanted to say it's very important to us that we grow constituents for everything, for everything that we're doing. Mm -hmm. I think we're out of time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I will say thank you.